take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As I said, we want to begin speaking about the issue of baptism. And really this first lecture or this first Sunday school uh, lesson is going to be on the meaning and the mode of baptism. The meaning and the mode of baptism. The meaning of baptism is sort of self-explanatory. What we want to speak about is a proper definition of baptism. What exactly are we doing when we apply the physical right of baptism to an individual? What, what is being expressed? What is being declared? What is the biblical meaning behind that physical right? We all understand that it is just water. There is, there is nothing holy about the water itself. So this is a symbolic act, but symbolic acts have great significance attached to them. Otherwise, Scripture would not command us to baptize if, if it wasn't important. Just because the water itself is not holy, just because the water itself has no mystical or magical power, doesn't mean that the rite of baptism is insignificant or unimportant there is significant meaning to baptism and exactly what we are doing when that rite of baptism is applied to various people. So that's the meaning of baptism. Then we want to look at the mode of baptism, and I'm not really sure this morning if we'll get to the mode of baptism, so let me just briefly define what I mean by mode. When I speak about mode, I'm not talking about when baptism is applied, that is, is it applied to an infant before they have faith, or is it applied to a professing believer after it's clear they have faith? I'm not talking about timing when I talk about mode. I'm not talking about the when of baptism. I'm talking about the how of baptism. How is the water to be applied? Is it, is it to be applied by effusion? That is by pouring or sprinkling, some form of that, or is it to be applied only through the means of immersion? And I'll just say at the beginning that that, that seems to be, in, in our current modern day, there seems to be more than any other time in the history of the church, people that hold to an exclusive immersionism. An exclusive immersionism. In other words, they believe the only proper way of baptism is immersion. That is perhaps the most popular view in the United States with the advent of non-denominationalism um, and, and all sorts of, of various factors feed into that. But that is an aberrant view when you take a step back from church history. What you'll see is that the majority view throughout church history is not only not an exclusive immersionist position, but rather the affirmation that a fusion or sprinkling or pouring is the preferred method. Historically, when you take a step back, that is the majority opinion. That is the majority view. Now, that doesn't seal the argument. That's why we want to talk about the meaning of baptism and the mode of baptism. But just to understand at the beginning, because you may think, why talk about the mode? It's so obvious that the only proper form of baptism is immersion. Don't hold to that too quickly. Because we need to be thoughtful and we need to be honest about history and honest as well about the symbolism that scripture uses when it speaks about baptism. And you may actually be surprised uh, that the symbolism, 
with respect to the mode of baptism um, doesn't have a lot of support for an exclusively immersionist position. Now all of that we'll probably not even cover this morning, but that'll just give you a taste of what we're talking about when we're speaking about the meaning of baptism and the mode of baptism. But I want to begin here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because I feel like the Apostle Paul, when we have a discussion about baptism, he says in verse 17, this very important statement, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's quite a staggering statement, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, I was ordained, I was commissioned, I was called to do one primary thing, and that is to preach the gospel. Paul would say in another place, he was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel was the power of God unto salvation. Here he's saying very clearly that he was called to preach the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Baptism is not the power of God unto salvation. Baptism is merely a sign. Baptism is merely a seal. Baptism is merely a sacrament that declares the grace of God, but it doesn't force the grace of God upon any individual. That was never the intention of it. And Paul says here in verse 17, that Christ did not even call him or send him to baptize. That was not what was to mark Paul's ministry. In fact, that's not even what was to mark apostolic ministry, baptism. No, the preaching of the gospel. So as we begin this discussion, we need to place first things first. What is of most importance? And what is of most importance is not baptism, but what baptism represents, and that is God's promise of salvation that only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It does not come through a rite. It does not come through a ritual. And that's why Paul says, I was not sent by Christ just to perform some ritual. I was called to preach the gospel. And if you skip back in verse 14, Paul even says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Here's his reason, verse 15, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Paul says, verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul's saying, it's so unimportant to me, I don't even remember who I baptized. But I'm grateful that it wasn't a lot of you because you have all placed more of an emphasis on the rite of baptism than on the gospel itself. There's some sort of badge of honor that you are carrying about your baptism. I was baptized by the apostle Paul. I am more holy. I am more spiritual. And I think in principle that can be applied to our modern day in terms of how we discuss baptism, how baptism is applied, the timing of baptism, the mode of baptism. There are many people that want to fight and argue over baptism and they lose sight of what baptism symbolizes, which is the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm convinced the Apostle Paul would not have had as strong of a stance on baptism as many people today do in terms of separating and dividing with other clear Christians because they have a different view 
of baptism. And I want to be very clear at the beginning that when we started this church, we took the approach of the Apostle Paul. We want the gospel to be the primary emphasis, not baptism. I think that is a scriptural position. I think that is a biblical position. Now, obviously, every church and the leadership of every church has to make decisions in terms of how baptism is going to be conducted. They have to have a doctrine of baptism, and they have to teach that unashamedly, but there needs to be a willingness to embrace fellow Christians that may hold a different position on the timing of baptism or the mode of baptism. And notice I'm being careful about that. There are some people that believe in baptismal regeneration. That is, they believe that baptism is a means of salvation. That's not what we're talking about. That, that would be, someone who holds to that is not even a Christian. So someone who holds to baptismal regeneration must be corrected on their baptism. What we're talking about is the in-house debate regarding should you baptize the infants of believers before they demonstrate faith? Or, or, or do you have to baptize by immersion in, in every case, only professing adults? And I think that we need to have liberty and grace and charity on these issues. So 1 Corinthians 1 is a good place to sort of set the stage to say what is important and what is not important. And what we're speaking about is important because we're speaking about a sacrament of the church, but we need to recognize that there have been various degrees of application regarding baptism and, uh, baptism and various understandings of what exactly is being done when baptism is applied, and we need to have charity, we need to have grace with one another on these secondary issues. So the meaning and the mode of baptism. Let's start by defining the meaning of baptism. And to do that, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. This is sort of a, a primary text, I think, regarding the issue of baptism. It may surprise you, but it's impossible to talk about the meaning of baptism without first <laughs> talking about the meaning of circumcision. And Paul brings these two things together comparing and contrasting them in Colossians chapter 2 he says in verse 11 notice in him that is in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh notice this by the circumcision of Christ verse 12 having been buried with him that is with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And Paul is clearly connecting circumcision of the Old Testament with baptism of the New Testament. That's clearly what he is doing. Circumcision, as you well know, because we've been looking at Genesis chapter 17, the last two Lord's Day, circumcision was a sign that God used to mark out his covenant people beginning with Abraham. All the way back in Genesis chapter 17, God was clear. He came to Abraham. Verse 7 says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 9 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout 
their generations. What is the covenant? Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in all the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now remember when we spoke about the covenants, there is only one primary covenant of grace. The covenant that God is making with Abraham is one of the covenants that is working out that covenant of grace. The covenant God made with Moses was a working out of that covenant of grace. The covenant God made with David was a working out of that one covenant of grace. The new covenant in Christ was the culmination and the apex and the fulfillment of the one covenant of grace. So when God says that circumcision is going to be a sign He's speaking about during the days of Abraham and Moses and the days of the Old Testament that circumcision would be a sign of God's promise to save his people. And the language there in Genesis 17 uses these terms. Everlasting, generations, offspring. So the language of God's promise to Abraham did not end with the nation of Israel. These are everlasting promises. These are promises that are to go through generation after generation after generation. These are promises that are to be nurtured and taught to the offspring of believers like Father Abraham. There is an everlasting aspect to God's covenant promises of salvation to save those who have faith like Abraham and to save those who have faith like Abraham, who have children, to save those children. So for example, if you turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see this played out in no uncertain terms, that this promise of God saving Abraham and his family, saving generations of people, has conditions to it. Deuteronomy chapter 7 And notice with me in verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So the conditions involve keeping the covenant, loving God, keeping his commandments. When that occurs, when faith is nurtured, In covenant households, God is faithful to his covenant promises to a thousand generations. He repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Verse 11, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Now what was involved with those statutes and rules but the the, the sign of circumcision? That the sign of circumcision being applied to the children was a step of faith by the parents trusting that if they raised their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, beginning from the time that they were eight days old and circumcising them, they were communicating that they were trusting in the promises of God. That was a good start to set this child apart and to begin teaching them regarding the gracious promises of God to save a people for himself. And, and we could go to just a number of different passages. I'll just quote one more from the prophet Isaiah 
The Bible says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The word that I give to you and that I have put in your mouth my promise of salvation shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore throughout generation after generation after generation. God's covenant promises were being established. And so the people of God, beginning with Abraham, began using this sign of circumcision to mark out the people of God to declare the faithfulness of God's covenant promises. This wasn't so much an individual thing. This was a corporate thing that all of the people of God did to all of their children. And so it was applied that way. Now, Paul is comparing circumcision in Colossians 2, to baptism. So there are very similar principles that transcend the covenants. The idea of it being everlasting, the idea of it going down generationally and being applied to offspring, all of that remains intact. Now there is something very important that Paul says in Romans chapter 4. If you turn over there with me, he's very clear that Abraham was not saved through his circumcision, and Abraham's children were not saved through their circumcision. Abraham was saved through faith, and by the way, Abraham's children, if they were saved, were only saved through faith. Romans 4 verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that is Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. That is first generation Gentiles who have the same type of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There's one people of God, Paul says. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So let's be very, very clear here. The gospel doesn't change. God's promises do not change. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was true for Abraham. That was true for Abraham's children. But it's important to see that though the sign of the covenant changes from circumcision to baptism, the gospel promises do not change. Circumcision did not save in the Old Testament. Baptism does not save in the New Testament. Scripture is very clear about that. But the sign does change. Now, what, what does that tell us? Think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Very simple process of deduction. The sign is not as important as the substance of the gospel. That's why the sign can change. If the sign was the most important thing, if we believed that circumcision re always resulted in salvation, or if we believe that baptism always results in salvation, then we're making the sign as equally as important and as equally as powerful as the gospel itself. And the very fact that there is flexibility with what the sign is, maybe it's the rainbow in the sky, maybe it's the circumcision of the foreskin, maybe it's water baptism. 
The sign can be flexible, but the promises of God are not flexible. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The sign itself does not save. It's a sign that points in the direction of the destination of ultimate salvation for all who have faith, for all who believe. Romans 4 is clear. Abraham believed and God accredited it to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous based upon his belief. Now, after Christ came, the promises didn't change, but the sign did change from circumcision to baptism. So we read um, in Matthew chapter 28, the command of God, you know it well, but interesting language, Jesus says, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. There's nothing about circumcision here. It's baptism. And it's the baptism of the nations. Nations are made up of tribes. Tribes are made up of families. Families are made up of individuals. But notice the collective command here is to baptize a lot of people as you teach them to observe all the things God has commanded. That sounds very similar to me to Genesis 17. You are to circumcise your offspring. This is part of a test of whether or not you are trusting in my promises. But as you you circumcise your offspring, Abraham, understand that you need to teach them to obey me, all that I've commanded, all of my statutes, all of my rules, all of my laws. It's the same sort of thing that is being commanded in Matthew chapter 28. And so obviously Romans chapter 4 is critically important. For example, when Paul says, skip back to verse 11 of Romans chapter 4, Speaking about Abraham, it says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul says he received the sign, verse 11, of circumcision, which is also a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. The sacraments are signs and seals. That's where we get the language. So in the Trinity Psalter, chapter 27 on the sacraments, page 935, Article 1 says that sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. There is one covenant of grace, whether the Abrahamic administration, the Mosaic administration, the Davidic administration, or the administration of Christ, which we're in today. There's one covenant of grace, and there's all sorts of holy signs and seals. They're instituted by God, listen to this, to represent Christ and his benefits, to confirm our interest in him, and also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Article 2. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. 
Article 3, the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. The signs and seals don't save. Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend on the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. This is what Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians 1. You don't have a better baptism just because I baptize you. I am the Apostle Paul. But your baptism isn't better than someone else's. And then Article 4 says there can only be two sacraments ordained by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Article 5, the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. In other words, baptism is the same thing as circumcision. Well, it's not the same thing because it's a different sign, but it's representing the same thing. That's what the confession teaches and that's what scripture teaches. Circumcision and baptism are called signs and seals because a sign points to something and a seal confirms something. Um, In Esther 3.12, King Ahasuerus has a seal that he makes with his signet ring and I I suppose this is probably a a good illustration um, of and you wouldn't even have to go to this in the Bible. I mean, we're all familiar in history with documents that kings draw up, whether it be charters or promises or what have you, and they use a, a signet ring to seal, to confirm the validity of that dark document. So the seal benefits the recipient, not the giver. The seal is given to assure The king subjects that the message they are reading comes from the king. The message they are reading can be trusted. The message that they are reading has authority and that the king has the ability to come through with the promise of whatever the message says. Baptism is a sacrament. Baptism is a sign and a seal confirming the promises of God. Circumcision is a sign and a seal confirming the promises of God. Baptism does not cause the grace of God. Circumcision does not cause the grace of God to occur on an individual. They are signs and they are seals. They represent the promises of God himself. So in Colossians 2, Paul is comparing circumcision of the Old Testament with baptism of the New Testament because both point to the salvation promises of God. And we see a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 2. Once Christ has come, buried, resurrected, and ascended, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And Peter is very clear that Israel is guilty of killing their Messiah. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But he was raised and he ascended. He's the Lord and the Christ. Verse 37 says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. The promise 
Baptism represents the promise of God to forgive, the promise of God to save, just like circumcision represented the promise of God to save. For those who have faith, for those who believe. Now, in Old Testament Israel, there were many faithless nominal Jews who faithfully circumcised their sons. And they were not believers. The Bible is clear about that. And in the New Testament, there are many faithless, nominal Christians who have their babies christened. There are many faithless, nominal Christians who stand up in a Baptist church as adults, give their testimony, and walk away from the Lord two months later. It doesn't matter whether it's a baby who can't speak or an adult who can speak. There are always those who have the sacrament or the signs and seals confirming and validating God's promises. Those signs and seals are applied to people all the time who prove to be unbelievers. So your position on baptism, you need to be very, very careful that you don't overestimate what the sign does. The sign does not cause salvation. And there are many people who believe they can create some sort of regenerate church. We've got to wait until someone has had the opportunity to sow their wild oats and they've gone off to college. And then if it appears their faith is still there, then we'll baptize them. Because we want a regenerate church. That was never the purpose of the signs and the seals. God commanded Abraham to circumcise his children before there was ever any evidence of faith. Because the point was not that this ritual, this physical rite, validated anything concerning that individual until a later point, at which point they would have faith. Now, we know that physical circumcision was never an end in and of itself because of God's words in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Very critical here, verse 16. Why are there two different signs, circumcision and baptism? Well, here's our clue. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. God says to Israel, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your what? Heart. And be no longer stubborn. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Why does he tell Jews that? Because they had been physically circumcised and they weren't true believers. You've missed the point of the physical rite. Just because you're circumcised means diddly squat. If your heart is not circumcised, if sin has not been cut away, you're not a true believer. You don't have a true heart. So the seal of righteousness that Abraham had, Romans chapter 4, was not the seal of Abraham's personal faith. Go go back to to Romans chapter 4 for a minute because that's the language that is used both in the confession and in Scripture. Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. The seal of righteousness was not Abraham's personal faith. It was the righteousness of another, namely Christ. 
a righteousness that Abraham possessed by faith, but the seal of righteousness was not a seal of his personal commitment to God, but God's promised commitment to him and his children. The righteousness was that of Christ's that was imputed to him. So Abraham was believing in the objective promise of God, which was the coming of the righteousness of Christ. So the seal did not represent the experiential faith of Abraham, but the objective faith of the gospel. When Abraham was circumcised, that circumcision was pointing forward to the coming righteousness of Christ. And Abraham could only receive that righteousness through faith alone. He couldn't receive it any other way. The circumcision was not, in the case of Abraham's children, necessarily validating anything about their personal faith. They were eight days old when they received the circumcision. But Abraham is a first-generation believer. So he is circumcised inwardly before he is circumcised outwardly. Uh, But there were many that were circumcised outwardly, Deuteronomy 10.16, who were never circumcised inwardly. So the sign itself didn't validate or confirm necessarily anything about the individual. This is why Abraham's son, Ishmael, who was circumcised, was not a believer. Abraham's grandson, Esau, was circumcised and wasn't a believer. Well, Ishmael was circumcised. Isaac was circumcised. If the sign confirmed faith, then the sign lied about Ishmael. Um, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Jacob was circumcised, Esau was circumcised, but apparently the sign lied about Esau because he wasn't a true believer. He didn't receive the inheritance of God. The sign and the seals do not point to the individual. They point away from the individual because salvation itself points away from the individual, points to Christ and his righteousness. The signs and the seals, whether circumcision or baptism, don't point to the redeemed, they point to the redeemer. A little baby that is circumcised or a little baby that is baptized makes a huge declaration. You know what the declaration is? This child can do nothing to save themselves. But the sign and the seal points to the power of God to save who he will, when he will, how he will, according to his promises and isn't it interesting you go back to Romans chapter 2 in verse 28 we just read that God wants the hearts of his people circumcised Deuteronomy 10 what does Paul say in Romans 2 28 for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision in the ultimate sense outward and physical say wait a second It was outward and physical. Yes, it was outward and physical, but not in the ultimate sense because God wanted hearts circumcised. Verse 29, but a Jew, a true son of Abraham, is one inwardly. He's had his heart circumcised. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, notice this language, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Baptism doesn't save. You're not saved according to the letter of the law. 
Christ commands baptism, but you're not saved just because you're baptized. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. What does water baptism symbolize? It symbolizes the work of the Spirit in cleansing away our sin. What does circumcision symbolize? It symbolizes the cutting away of sin. That is the exact language, don't forget our primary text, Colossians chapter 2, that Paul uses when he says, verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What is that? That's spiritual circumcision. What did it do? It put off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ was cut off from the Father. Christ was cut off from the people of God, crucified outside of the camp. Through his death, we are circumcised. We have the body of sin cut off. And verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, we're also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the sign changes, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament, but they convey the same exact reality. The only way anybody is saved is if God goes into a heart and performs surgery and cuts out sin, removes it, and forgives that individual, changing their life. Or, to use another illustration, the Spirit of God comes and regenerates them and washes away their sin so that they are pure and clean and holy the signs and the seals therefore ultimately point to something true about Christ namely his righteousness being the only thing that will save us something true inwardly about self really has nothing to do with the signs and the sacraments it has absolutely nothing Because you never know when a person has truly come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the signs and seals don't validate something about the individual. They validate the promises of God that he will save those who have faith. And oftentimes the signs and seals are applied to those who end up having faith. And of course if there is a first generation believer like Abraham... You had many first-generation believers in the early New Testament church. In fact, all of them were first-generation believers. That's why you have so many examples of adult baptisms. They were just like Father Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. They finally believed and accepted after rejecting Christ that he was the Messiah. And now with the change of the administration of the covenants, baptism now replaced that Old Testament sign of circumcision. So Paul says here in Colossians 2 that spirit baptism replaces spirit circumcision of the heart. In the Old Testament, God chose the sign of circumcision to convey what the Spirit of God was doing in hearts, cutting away sin. In the New Testament, God chooses to convey the washing away of sin with the imagery of baptism. It's the same Spirit of God. It's the same promises of God. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, circumcision is done without hands. Baptism is done without physical hands. 
because God is the one that must spiritually circumcise, spiritually baptize, and wash away sins. God must change the heart. The ceremony itself does not do that. Why did circumcision give way to baptism? Because Christ died on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Circumcision was a bloody rite. Christ has come. God says no more blood. Blood has been shed. Sin has been forgiven. Now the Spirit of God is going to be poured out, poured from above at Pentecost. What better sign could there be than water? Because that's the language that is used in the Old Testament. God's going to sprinkle the nations with the Holy Spirit. The imagery of water being poured down is the imagery used to describe the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. And so now, circumcision gives way to baptism. Baptism pictures the cleansing of sin. Circumcision pictured the cutting away of sin. But, but that was until the Messiah came and his blood was shed and he was cut off for his people. Now, what better imagery is there than water, which cleanses and washes and purifies and makes us white as snow? What better imagery than water when everything about the Old Testament and promising the pouring out of the Spirit was language of of water and renewal and cleansing? And so you can sort of see that the meaning of baptism is one and the same. With the meaning of circumcision. It's exactly what Paul's saying in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. We're in a different covenant, so we have a different sign. Same promises, same God, same spirit that has to do a spiritual surgery on the heart. It's just different imagery. And what was true about Old Testament saints is true about New Testament saints. If you're a believer here today, it's because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Pick the analogy. Has your heart been circumcised? Has the Spirit of God washed you and made you new? It's the same Spirit. It's the same work. But God condescends to us with signs and symbols that we can understand. I mean, God is a Father to us that likes to give illustrations to His children to say, son, daughter, you want to know what this is like? You are a dirty, rotten, hell-bound sinner. And unless God performs a spiritual surgery on your unclean heart and cuts away the cancer, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Well, I don't understand that. Son, daughter, it's as if you went outside and got filthy dirty when mom and dad told you not to do that. Unless the Spirit of God washes your dirty heart clean, you can have nothing to do with your Father in heaven. This is not that complicated. We overcomplicate. Circumcision, why? Circumcision, what's going on? Baptism, it's just water. Yes, it's just water. It's just the cutting away of foreskin. But this is God Almighty condescending to us to communicate this one truth, and that is there is nothing you can do to earn salvation and earn his favor. The Spirit of God must enter your heart, cut away your sin, wash you clean, or you can have no part of God. 
And what God wants believing parents to do is to convey those truths to their children generation after generation after generation after generation. You say, why? Because God promises that these salvation promises are for our children. Why would we not convey these truths? And why would we not use these signs and seals as pictures for our children to understand what God is doing in the world to save his people. And that is exactly what the scriptures teach us concerning the significance of baptism. So that's the meaning of baptism. You can't understand baptism apart from understanding circumcision. But now once you understand that it's one and the same, now we must move to speak about the mode of baptism. And I've already given you a little clue. The Old Testament is very clear that the Spirit of God is going to be poured down. That God is going to sprinkle the nations. And you have all the imagery in the Old Testament of washing and purification rites which have to do with sprinkling and pouring. And oh, by the way, there is some immersion in the Old Testament as well. The mode is not the most important thing. But next week, we will talk about the most biblical mode of baptism that most properly represents what the Spirit of God is doing in the world. May God grant us grace to understand these things that we often overly complicate. May we receive His truth as simple children. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Your truth which... Lord, has a way to pierce our hearts and open our eyes and help us to see things we haven't beheld before. Lord, to behold them in new light, to understand the consistency of your scriptures, this one covenant of grace. You are the same God saving your same people the same way. Help us not to confuse the gospel with the signs and seals of the gospel. Help us to look to Christ and not to ourselves and what we can do. Help us to rest in Him and Him alone as our Savior. We pray these things in His blessed and holy name. Amen.